What I want to do is start out with some time for you to think and, and talk. We've been talking at you a lot, and I want to get you, you thinking as, and, and chatting. Um, so the first thing you're getting is a note card, and I want you to start thinking about the two or three topics you don't want to preach. Two or three topics that you don't want to preach. So start thinking about it. If you already know what they are, you can feel free to, to write them down. The next handout that's coming is, is really, can I get three more people to help? Just anybody, it doesn't matter. You don't have to be a part of the staff or running the conference. We're all ministers, right? We just do what needs done. So uh, uh, the next one that's, that's being handed out is just a set of topics that you might not want to preach. So if you're sitting there thinking, uh, I don't know, I preach anything, then look at this list and think, oh no, I don't want to preach that. So you, you might not be able to think of it until you see it. Now, that's just a list uh, compiled. They're, they're not all the tough topics, obviously. That's just some of the tough topics. But go ahead and think for a moment about two or three things that you don't want to preach on and start writing them down. In about a minute or two, I'm going to have you turn to each other and talk about why. Name your topics and then talk about why. You don't want, I know, what are you doing to me, Dave? I don't want to have to, I'm telling you that now so that if you already wrote something down in your note card that you don't want to admit to people, you quick scratch it out and, and write something that you're willing to talk about. You, you don't have to talk about anything you don't want to talk about, obviously, but I do want us to have conversations with ministers at our table. So think about two or three topics you don't want to preach about. In two minutes, we'll turn to the table and we'll talk with each other. All right, now we want to start talking at the table. So if you're going to, you can keep processing that as we go through this session, processing which things you really don't want to preach about, naming it, admitting it. But now let's talk to the table. Why don't you want to preach on that? Name something that you have in your card. You don't have to name everything. And talk about why. Just kind of go in a circle. Now let me say this. A lot of preachers in the room, we can talk. Keep it short. Go. <laughs> All right, let's come back, let's come back, finish up whatever you're saying. I know it was extremely important. All right, now think with me for a moment. What topics were repeated at your table? So more than one person mentioned the topic. If there wasn't one, that's fine. Maybe they were repeated on the cards, you just didn't mention it. But don't speak unless you know a topic that was repeated at least twice at your table. Anybody have one? Yeah. Politics and obesity. Great. Someone else. Suicide. Someone else. Homosexuality. Someone else. Muslims and Christians. Someone else. Immigration. Someone else. Gun control. Someone else. Okay, are all hearts clear? All right, so, so those are some of those that were repeated among us. Now, if we'd had more time to talk and we had to name everything that was on our note card or we had to be honest and were forced somehow, they gave us a truth serum or, or uh, Jack Bauer or whoever the new guy is, came in and tortured us and we put everything down. If we had to say everything, then we might have had more repeated. But those are some of the ones that preachers are facing. They're tough. Why are they tough? If there was a reason that was repeated at your table at least twice. I'd like to hear that now. So there might have been a multiplicity, but a reason. Now, you may be naming it for somebody else. This might not be your reason. Just somebody repeated it. Yes. Lack of knowledge. Fantastic. Don't know what to say. Next. Okay, so this is something we talk about face-to-face. -face. Maybe not something I want to talk about from the pulpit. Great. Next. Listener shuts down. If, if you talk about this, done. Okay, so I'm struggling with this. How can I talk about it? How, how many of us have never felt that? Please don't raise your hand. We'll shoot you. I mean, this, you know, we felt that. Of course we felt that. We're human beings. Can't figure out which passage. And then you get all of your seminary training or whatever else, and you hear all these internalized 
brilliant people. Every time I hear Ken Shank preach or teach, I just think, man, he knows more, you know, he's forgotten more than I know. It's, it's just amazing how much comes out. It's, oh, well, you know, of course, I don't know if you know this. I didn't know that. Well, you probably already know this. I didn't know that. Well, if you read it in the Hebrew, <laughs> you know, ah, and so then you're thinking, I can't even pick the right passage, and this guy could read it in eight languages. Oh, I quit. I'm going to go work at Edward Jones. Any others? Repeated reasons. Unknown trigger words. Don't know which words I will say that will, yeah, okay, so for trauma perhaps or other things like that. All hearts clear? Wonderful. Let's talk about what's connected to all of those, at least some themes. Uh, Fears. We're scared. Uh, I mean, that's the obvious thing for us to say, but I think we need to name it. So I was praying for this moment a few weeks ago and thinking, if I was coming to this, what would I need? And I, I took a little time and I prayed and I thought about it and I was trying to be honest with myself and I named tough topics for me. Think, you know, when you're a guest preacher, it's easier to avoid tough topics unless they make you speak on it. <laughs> Hint, you could get a guest speaker, make them speak on it. If it goes bad, you say, oh shoot, we'll never have them again. But you know, usually the guest speaker doesn't get to talk about it. I remember I was coming into a church once, I'd preached that many times, and they were having a, a, a sermon series on difficult topics. And they said, what might you want to speak on? And I said, well, how about I help your church think about how to think politically? I know that a lot of pastors don't want to talk about that. I'll talk about that. Pastor said right away, nope, I'm going to take care of that one. No. What else? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, I'll preach on something else. I preached on women in ministry, and that was great. He didn't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. I was happy to touch that with a one-inch stick. That was great. Uh, so guest preachers, though, can avoid it. You as a local church pastor, if you're going to shape, if you're a local church pastor, if you're going to shape these people over time, eventually you think, nobody's talking about this. I'm just as scared about it as anybody else is. Anybody else will be just as scared of it as I am. I'm their shepherd, though. I don't get to run away from the wolves. I run at them. So I was praying for you, and I was thinking, we've got to, first of all, name the fears, and we've got to call the wolves out and name them that they're wolves. The reason you're scared is very legitimate. Those are legitimate reasons to have some anxiety. They are wolves. They're ravenous. <laughs> they bite. Drippy fangs. Here's our fears. Failure. We're, we're, we're all afraid of failure, and when it comes to speaking on something, we're afraid that we won't speak well enough. Uh, we might choose the wrong passage. We might take it out of context. We might use a trigger word that causes something to go wrong. We're not sure yet what to say. We don't have clarity on it ourselves. We're failing, perhaps, in our own personal lives on that issue. How can I speak about it? We have a fear of failure. That's normal human being stuff. Whether you're going up to bat playing baseball or you're cooking a romantic dinner for your spouse, I left out other illustrations that would work here too uh, in the spousal domain, or uh, you are preaching a sermon, you face fear of failure and it can be crippling. Conflict. Man, if you're a minister, you know conflict, don't you? It's like, well, what do you do for a living? Conflict. I mean, I'm a pastor. You can't get away from it. If you try to get away from it, you know, it's like weeds in the garden. If you let them go, they just dig deeper roots. They multiply and they spread. You can't let conflict go, but nobody wants to weed the garden. Nobody loves gardening because of weeds. Why do you love gardening? I just love getting in there and getting weeds. I love. I'm not speaking of some other kind of weed people do like that. But I... I don't love gardening because of the weeds. I love it because of the flowers or because of the tomatoes or whatever else, if you're a flower person or you're a vegetable person. You don't love ministry because of conflict, but unless you face it, it will take over the garden. It will crowd out the flowers. It will choke out the tomatoes. You know that. You feel that, and yet sometimes you just say, can I not have a conflict this week? Can I, can I not? And when you've already had other conflicts, when you had a pastor on your staff who just confronted you in an inappropriate way in front of the entire board, or you had a member of your church fail morally, or you had whatever, name it, you just think, well, how am I going to preach about homosexuality this week? I can't do it. 
No, that's going to be like, I'm going to take a stick, and there's a hornet's nest. Let me beat it for a while and stand under it. Why do I want to do that? Conflict. Rejection. Shuts them down. They stop right away. The listener shuts down. I say, I'm going to talk about this. They're done. Family's been a part of our church for a long time. I preach what I really believe. They leave. They're my dearest friends. I know what they think. They don't know what I think. But I think this is what Scripture says. And if I say what Scripture says, I might lose my best friend. These are wolves. So the first thing I, I felt like, if I was you, I'd want somebody to tell me, Dave, you're scared for a very good reason. It's okay to be scared. It's okay to look at a tough topic and think, ah. It's okay that you turn to a tough topic and think, I might want to put that off a little bit. You can't put it off forever. But it's normal and human and right and good to think, i got to preach about this the right time. I've got to think about this with a little bit more tail than I might think about something else. I can't just start this sermon on Monday and preach it on Sunday. It's okay for you to say, i got to strategically plan this thing. There might be some pre-things. There might be some post-things. I might need to have some personal conversations for the next six months before I ever touch this thing in the pulpit. There's real reasons you're scared. Lost. And these are, I mean, you went through pastoral counseling, I don't care. You, you know this stuff. We're all human. And pastors face all the human stuff in a particular way in context and role. So we're afraid of loss. Often failure, conflict, and rejection, what we're afraid of in those is the loss. You lose members, you lose attendance. Those things might mean a lose of sense of, loss of sense of status or prestige or, or respect when you come to places like this. Loss of friendship, loss of connection, loss of a sense of safety, loss of, you're the best pastor we've ever had. Loss of every time you preach, I love it. Loss. We have to name the fears, but we also, when we name these wolves, have to say, I'm a shepherd. I'm sorry. I didn't know how to soften this one. I kept trying to find a way, but I think you just got to name it. I'm a shepherd. I don't run from wolves. I run at them. Ministry is the most fulfilling job in the world. That doesn't mean it's easy. One of the things I tell my kids often, you probably tell your kids this, anything that's worth having takes hard work. If it was easy, everybody would have it. Marriage, parenting, church, kingdom, anything that's worth having takes hard work. And you got to face up to stuff you don't want to face up to. Sometimes I really think pastors, when they're facing a tough topic, should go to a counselor or a spiritual director in advance. Don't wait till afterwards when you're picking up the mess. <laughs> you're scared of the thing anyway. You, if you're going to end up looking at porn or overeating or yelling at your kids or distancing yourself from your spouse or any other number of sins I could talk about that pastors use to cope emotionally with the process leading up to a tough topic, why wouldn't you pay money to actually get some help, or why wouldn't you pay the time with your spiritual director to get some help along the way on the front side of it? You are afraid, but you'll be much less afraid when you're not alone. And why don't you prepare this thing with a group of people? We don't have to preach alone. We don't have to be the only one carrying this burden. We can process this with key leaders. We can process this with staff. We can bring it to them, put it on the table, and they're going to say, oh, too. You know, they're going to, I don't want to touch that. And then you have other people saying that. And then you can say, yeah, but this is our job. This is what we do. We got to touch that. We don't live in a time where we can avoid touching that. What time is it? Preachers in exile? How do we separate or withdraw or accommodate? 
We're going to have to talk about it, and then let's talk about how we're going to talk about it. And let's be on the same page together so that when I go up there in the pulpit, you're not going to look at me later and say, why'd you do it that way? Because I'm going to look back at you and say, because I said I was going to do it that way, or you said we were going to do it that way, and we all agreed. It's a lot easier to face a wolf when you're not alone. Sometimes you might be alone, though. David tackled a bear. <laughs> David nailed a lion. David, with a little stinky slingshot and a stone, knocked down a giant because of the God he served. You are not powerful. You are not wise. You are not strong. That's why God chose you. He chooses the weak and foolish things to shame the wise. Why do I think God called me to ministry? Because I was a mess. <laughs> All right, let's talk about how then to handle it. This is the, I'm gonna go through, I think, 10 uh, things to think about when you're in the process of dealing with a tough topic. How do you go about it? Uh, and I'm gonna take all of these from 1 Corinthians. Uh, uh, let me, actually, before I do that, I wanna give you a couple categories. I didn't put this in the slides, so let me just read these to you. I forgot them. Categories of tough topics that are in 1 Corinthians. So I did a whole study of 1 Corinthians preparing for this. I won't have time to read the entire book of 1 Corinthians, sorry. Uh, but went through the book of 1 Corinthians with just thinking about tough topics because if there's a book in the Bible where a preacher seems to just go head on, toe to toe, with a bunch of tough topics, it's 1 Corinthians. I mean, read the thing sometime and, and just go through it. But here are some categories of tough topics that he addresses in uh, 1 Corinthians that I think are there for all of us, and then I'll talk about this. Uh, number one, they're politically dividing. Apollos, Paul, factions, parties. Is Christ divided? Uh, sometimes we're, we don't want to talk about something because it's politically dividing, and some of you put down politics simply because it was a big enough umbrella that covered everything you don't want to touch. There's a lot of things under that umbrella. But, but big category, and Paul goes head after it. This is a dividing thing in the church. He addresses it. Uh, two, countercultural. Sometimes we don't want to preach on things because they're countercultural. The seekers that we might want to come to our church may not come back. The people who are accommodating to the culture in our church may not want to keep attending or tithing. The, the leadership among us that has bought into the cultural narrative might not agree with us. It's countercultural. And Paul in chapter 8, chapter 10, chapter 12, he's talking about countercultural things. His entire list of love, by the way, is countercultural. 1 Corinthians 13. No matter how many marriages we put it in and, and cutesy little kitschy plaques we put it upon, it actually isn't the way we think. Well, I just didn't love her anymore. Love never fails. Three, doctrinal conflict. Chapter 12, chapter 15. So that whole big section about spiritual gifts. And what do you do with spiritual gifts? Doctrinal conflict. Well, is, is the key marker spiritual gift speaking in tongues? It, 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 and if you are speaking in tongues, is it that the gift is in the hearing? Other people hear their own language, or is it in the speaking? Or it, was that just at the time for the apostles, or is it for a time for us now? Uh, it, it, what, which spiritual gifts are more important? All of that is still a conflict. We have whole denominations birthed completely from that conflict. And you might think, oh, that's just Pentecostalism splitting off. Pentecostalism split on that. That's how Pentecostalism split after the Azusa Street Revival. Seymour said the key mark of the indwelling of the Spirit is racial reconciliation. And the other wing said, no, it's speaking in tongues. A doctrinal conflict. And Paul goes at it head to head. And you, you know, we didn't have on this list. Maybe we did. We did. But you might have written down free will, uh, uh, predestination, things that every lay people wants to hear you talk about. Most pastors never want to talk about. You're in a Sunday school class and you're asking which topics you want to cover. How about predestination? How about not? <laughs> I was preaching in a Western context once. I preached on Ephesians 1. I read it, and then I used the language of the text, and I gave an Arminian definition of the word predestination. The board met afterwards and were wrestling with whether or not they should ever let me preach again. He's a Calvinist. Because I used the word that was in Scripture. I gave it a Wesleyan definition, but they'd never heard Wesleyans talk about it. He used the word. He must be Calvinist. And there's Calvinists in the room, I know. I'm like, can we get together? 
Anyway, whatever. Doctrinal conflict. <laughs> unclear. Just one word on this one. It's unclear. A friend of mine says sometimes in life the, only, the best word for things is ick. It's just ick. And you get into the middle of it and you work in it, you get your, your hands down in all the way up to your elbows and then you lift them out and you think, yeah, it's still ick. You spend a whole month on it. When you're done, you know what? That's still ick. Stuff that is just unclear. Try to get into a small group and define what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman today. Ick. It's just muddy. Uh, confrontation is, is the next one. Confrontation. So politically dividing, countercultural, doctrinal conflict, unclear, confrontation. Paul just confronts people directly. 11, 17 through 34 is one example. He just confronts them directly. He confronts them on Apollos and Paul. He confronts them on their, uh, their, their doctrine of, uh, of spiritual gifts. He, he confronts them on all these other things. But sometimes he's just directly confronting stupid stuff. I'm, one of you is sleeping with someone you're related to and you came to church and bragged about it. Just stupid stuff. And he's confronting it directly. Conflicts, so confrontation. We don't always want to preach about those things, do we? You know what we'd love to preach on? I want to talk today about the love of God. And now, no matter how far we go or how far we wander, the prodigal father is always looking for the prodigal son. Would you turn? We love to preach that. Right? First Corinthians is a great book. Study it. Well, let's walk through some things about how from Paul. So I'm not going to have time to reference every passage I got this from. I hope you'll be okay with that. I'm just going to go fast and you can take notes and whatever I say and whatever comes out, we'll just deal with it. And uh, Hopefully the spirit will plant a seed somewhere. Textual authority. Paul, over and over again, is quoting from Scripture. It is written, God has said. And when people are saying things that aren't true, he says, did you write the word? Did you write Scripture? You know, there's a passage where it says women should remain silent. He's actually quoting people in the church. And he says, what? There's a particle in the Greek that most English translations leave out. What? Certainly not. Did you write the word? Did you create the law? Who do you think you are? So often we preach with the Corinthians against Paul. This is a side note. So textual authority. Textual authority, textual authority, textual authority. This is a preaching conference, right? You don't matter how many times I say to students at the undergraduate, master's, and doctorate level, and I'm teaching all three levels this summer, no matter how many times I say to undergraduate, graduate, or doctoral level students of preaching, that textual authority is the key. Stick to the text. Hug the text. Preach what the word says. Find out what it says, then say what it says in the way it said it for the time now. No matter how many times I say it, every time you get people who stand up and they find a word and they jump off a diving board into the pool of their own making. And they're, you know, they're backstroking like a fly in the soup. <laughs> Spitting out stuff that they made up. Where'd you get that from? If you want to have authority when you're preaching on a tough topic, get in the Word. Know the Word. Study the Word. Consult the experts on the Word, and they're going to disagree. You heard Ken say it. Throw a rock. You can't throw a rock and not hit a scholar that says something wacky. I know. Wrestle with it. That means you've got to think on your own. Don't go to the commentaries before you go to the text. Do your hard work with the text. Outline the text. Mark up the text. Study the text. Don't short cut the Bible. Now, I remember the whiteboard in the church office where the knee replacements and the hip surgeries and the uh, uh, arteries being repaired and the so-and-so has gout and this person's goiter. And we all got to go. We got to go see all these people. I know that's there. And I remember the calendar pages full. I remember the calendar screen full. I remember the ding. Things I know there's stuff, but don't cheat scripture. Don't do it. If it means you need to take more time in developing this message because it's a tough topic and you're still unclear or you don't know the text or you're not sure what to say, do it. Work for a year. 
William Sloan Coffin, one of the most famous preachers to preach on tough topics, you'd probably agree with everything just about that he preached now. None of you would have agreed if you lived back then. Uh, he preached on tough topics all the time, it was his, and he was famous for it. The interesting thing that when you go back and study his preaching is, he only preached on one a year. Every year he tried to discern what his people needed to hear most that he didn't wanna talk about, that nobody was speaking about clearly, that there was lots of confusion in the culture and the time of the church, and for a year he studied that topic. And he preached other things along the way. But he had studied passages, he had read experts, and when he came to that pulpit on that day and he let everybody know it was coming and they were prepared for it, when he came to that pulpit on that day, man, he knew what he was gonna say, he knew the authority from which he was saying it, and he knew he was saying what he thought scripture said. Come what may to me, I will preach the word in season and out of season. Fire me. Textual authority. Christocentric imagination. Now, sometimes Paul's Christocentric imagination is not PG-13. Uh, that's fun. So, for example, um, if you unite your body with a prostitute... It's pretty graphic. You're uniting Christ with a prostitute. You are the body of Christ. When your body is united with a prostitute, you are uniting Jesus Christ with a prostitute. How can this be? That's not a text directly, but it is a Christocentric theological imagination that emerges from texts. So as you're reading texts, also have a Christocentric imagination about how you can guide people. What does it mean that we are the body of Christ? What does it mean that we're the representatives of Christ in the world? What does it mean that God is acting through the church and Christ is present among us in the practices of the church? What does it mean that when we say we proclaim the resurrected one, the resurrected one is present then in the proclamation? What does it mean when we say this is my body, this is my blood? People left Jesus, like 5,000, over that statement. What does it mean? A Christocentric imagination. Don't leave Jesus out. When you start talking about tough topics, preachers often have a tendency to leave Jesus out. We turn to Oprah, but we forget Jesus. And we'll give bumper stickers that Dr. Phil would have given, but not Jesus, necessarily. Don't forget Jesus just because you're preaching on a tough topic. Don't forget Jesus just because you're preaching on gun control. Well, Jesus never talked about guns. I know, but he did say carry a sword, and then he did say put the sword away. Now think about it. That was a weapon at the time. Now have a Christocentric imagination. Okay? Understand? Next. Use clear logical reasoning. I know that people make decisions, people make decisions with their heart more than their mind. I know. You're going to have to, I'll get to some of that later. But often what happens in our study is flipped in our speaking. In our speaking, we often start with the emotions to get people there, and we move to the reasons to get the whole thing together. Because if their emotions aren't there, they shut us down right away, if we don't find a way to bring their emotions in. But in our study, we flip it. Do you understand? We start with clear logical reasoning. I remember dealing with a tough topic with a, a preacher once, and, and he was using a certain passage a particular way, and I started using logic with him. And I said, now, okay, logically, that can't be true. Here, here, here. Now, that's just basic human logic. Scripture is true, but it can't mean something that is absolutely logical, logically contradictory with itself. So if it's logically contradictory with itself, it can't mean that. And he said to me, I don't care about logic. I'm just going to preach the word. Now, you got to put number one together with number three, because you think you're preaching the word, but if it's logically inconsistent with the word, you ain't preaching the word. You just think you are. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound doctrine and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires, will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear from Scripture. Pharisees preach scripture against Jesus. Satan used scripture against Jesus. Just because you're armed with the text does not mean you're on God's side. 
And unless you are thinking clearly and using clear logical reasoning, you can delude yourself and then delude your people. And we have a crusade. Or we say it's okay to own slaves. Or we oppress women. Or we become very stinking rich and wealthy and forget the poor and don't care. All in the name of the text. We're, you know, the hardest deceitful above all things. Clear logical reasoning. And there will be people in your congregation, I know that most Americans move in the gut and they move by emotions, but there will be people that if you can't logically explain this and do it in a clear, structured way, they won't shift. Paul did. Gospel-promoting practices. It seems to me over and over again through 1 Corinthians as I read through it and I study it, and it's also elsewhere in Scripture. It's in 1 Peter, it's in 2 Peter. Uh, you'll, you'll find it in, uh, well, other passages. Uh, Gospel-promoting practices where the, the, the writer of Scripture is thinking about what they want to be the kingdom of God, but they're also thinking about the time in which we live, and they're trying to figure out what will promote the gospel in the time in which we live, and therefore they're saying, do this, in order to promote the gospel. Uh, that sort of desperate accommodation thing that Ken was talking about, that passage that he mentioned, slaves are being beaten. This is horrendous. Now, this is a text of terror, some people call it, because Christian preachers have used this to force people into submission and keep them under the thumb of their masters, and it's wrong. That wasn't the point of the text. The point of the text was saying, look, it's gonna, it, the best way for you to get out of slavery is for your master to come to know Jesus. And for Philemon to look at Onesimus and say, how can I treat you the same way? You're my brother. So here's how you respond to the harsh treatment that is horrendous. It is wrong. It is evil. Gospel-promoting practices. When you're talking to your people, you need to think about what's going to promote the gospel in this culture, in this time, and in this age. And you need to tell them what to do in such a way to promote the gospel in this time, in this age. How they act determines whether or not somebody comes to Christ. That's important. Yes, we want to use textual authority. Yes, we want to make sure we have a Christocentric imagination. Yes, we want to use clear logic and reasoning to make sure that we're speaking the truth from Scripture. But we also need to be local theologians, practical theologians in a context, who are the theologians in residence, who say with authority for our people, do this. Because in this place and in this time, for these reasons, it will promote the gospel, and that is key. Gospel-promoting practices. Um, I think some of the uh, marriage stuff has that woven within it in the New Testament. Well, you have an unbelieving husband. You have an unbelieving wife. What do you do? Maybe something different than you would if they believed. Pragmatic compromises emerge out of that. Sometimes you've got to make a compromise. I wish you could all remain as I was, but because of so much sexual immorality, each one should have his own wife. I know this messes with the whole worship of marriage and family that we love in our culture, I know. But you know it's okay to be single like Jesus was? On purpose. That wasn't an accident. It wasn't like Jesus just couldn't get a girl. Ah, <laughs> oh, poor Jesus. He was despised and only rejected among men like one upon whom women would not turn their faces. <laughs> he was just ugly. So he knows what ugly people go through. He was single on purpose. Paul says, as a pragmatic compromise, it's better that you marry than you burn. <laughs> no, I'm weak, and I love my wife. I'm so happy I'm married. But I also know that's a pragmatic compromise that God called me to make. It's not that I'm not called. I really believe I'm called to be married. Not because I'm strong. Huh. And I have friends, dear friends, who are called to be single. And man, are they doing good in the kingdom of God. But we need to think as pastors and local theologians about the pragmatic compromises that we need to help our people make. And there's gonna be some of those. When we went as missionaries to Hawaii and the king had multiple wives and all those wives had children and if they were cut off, all those children would be impoverished, we had to make a decision about whether or not that king kept those wives. When you move into a neighborhood 
and someone's already there, a lesbian couple's already there, they have three adopted children, what are we gonna do? We haven't thought that through. We don't have an answer. We have to think that through. We have to have an answer. What do they do when they come to Christ? We're gonna have to think about pragmatic compromises, period. World has changed. It shocked us, Ken told us that. All right, let's get over the shock, let's get over the denial, let's move on to the grieving process, let's reorient to the new world, let's figure out what to do. Now maybe that will change, maybe that will come back. Do you think it will in your lifetime? Shake your head yes if you think it will, shake your head no if you think it won't, right now. Yeah. It might, but nah, you're all one. A realist in the room. We're gonna have to think these things through and we're not gonna have direct, obvious answers immediately approaching us from the text. We're gonna have to find out what the text says. We're gonna have to use clear logical reasoning. We're gonna have to use Christocentric imagination. We're gonna have to think about gospel-promoting practices in this culture, in this time, for this place. And then we're gonna have to tell people what to do. Because when you have a lesbian couple who comes to Christ and they have three adopted kids, they've gotta figure out what to do. Anticipate objections. Uh, this is just straight up from rhetoric, and Paul was a very well-trained rhetorician. Even though he said, I did not come with wise and eloquent words, uh, he did. <laughs> what he meant by that was, that wasn't the focus of my life. I came focused on power, and if I was weak and trembling, if I was crying, if I was weeping over you, if I admitted my vulnerabilities and my weakness, that was all for a purpose, because I want to boast in the cross of Christ. Well, that was a pretty eloquent argument, don't you think? It's pretty convincing. He was well-trained in rhetoric. And this is straight up from rhetoric. What he does all through 1 Corinthians is anticipate their objections, think them through, and know in advance what they're probably going to say. Otherwise, he could just say, here's the authoritative apostolic answer, do this. And 1 Corinthians, even though it might be two letters, would have been a very short book. Bing, 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 done. But he knew, and you know, they wouldn't obey. People have to have their objections answered. You have to get into their skin, live in their shoes for a while. That's why I think it's a great thing for pastors to go and work on the farm. I think it's a great thing for pastors to show up in the factory and spend a day there. I think it's a great thing for pastors to go and ask people direct questions about a sermon coming up. Well, what do you think about this? Tell me how you feel about this text. Mining all of those things is a treasure trove of wisdom and empathy that you need, right? You're not them. You gotta figure out what they think, how they feel, anticipate their objections, and then answer them, and this is the Western quadrilateral, uh, as some people call it, with scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Scripture is the focal point of the first part of your process. It doesn't stop there. What has the church always said? Go to the library of the Bible school or the college or university or seminary nearest you and look up those ancient Christian commentaries or go online <laughs> and use Google Books and Google Scholar and uh, the uh, patristic site that's out there for free and find out what has the church always said? What's the tradition say? It may not be what you're gonna say today, but then at least you'll be in the stream of tradition of Christianity. What does reason say? You're using clear and logical reasoning. What does experience tell you? What do all of our experiences tell us? How have you encountered this situation? How have others encountered this situation? Pastors, we, we major in stories for a very good reason. Those are encapsulated experiences that help us figure out life. Listen to people's stories. Ask for their stories. Call up the person who you know whose relative was murdered before you preach on murder. Ask around to figure out who might be an expert on trauma who's experienced multiple people's traumas over the, the course of their career. Listen to what they have to say. Talk to someone who is gay and listen to their stories. Experience. So find those objections but then answer them with scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. And you may not be able to do all of that in one sermon, I get it. Sometimes you're gonna to have to do a series on one of these things and build up for it in a big way. Then address in the midst of your, so we've talked about uh, sort of the process of, of 
preparing the actual content. We're talking about the process then of thinking through your audience and your listener. Now we're talking about how you actually deliver it. We're moving into the delivery time when we talk about this. How do you shape this thing? How do you form this thing? Make sure it touches their emotion, their reason, their volition, and their relation. That's a little different than it's up there. Did it in a kind of preachy way. There you go, like that? Touch their emotion, their reason, their volition, and their relation. All four of them. Because that is the holistic human being. If we leave some of that out, if we talk about emotion and reason, but we never call them to a point of acting on their will and doing something with it and motivating them to say, yes, I'm in, we haven't changed anything. We just got the, huh, hmm, yeah. Walk away the same way. You gotta hit the will. If we're not affecting their relationships, we're ignoring all of the best research out there. You know, Jonathan Haidt's book, H-A-I-T-D-T, talks about the fact that relationships are actually what form us more than anything. And if all of our relationships surrounding us are opposed to a particular thing that you're saying, they're not gonna change. They're gonna still be stuck in those relationships. You're gonna have to address the way they relate and who they relate to and how they relate. If you don't address the relationships, you address the other three, you might get the holy nod and no change. Strategically planned pre and post processing. I love how Paul does this. Remember I talked to so-and-so. I've also sent a letter to such and such, and there's another letter coming around. I'll make sure you read it publicly. And when I get there, please prepare a guest room for me because I want to talk with you in person about these things. There's hints all through Paul's letters that he's prepared people in advance and done other things than the direct speaking, preaching, teaching, writing moment. And he's following up with it afterwards. You know, the old thing for itinerant preachers used to make fun of, of itinerant preaching and say, well, you blow in, you blow up, and you blow out. Well, we don't get to do that. So we need to think about how we build up to the moment, not just blow in. We gotta build up to this thing. Uh, someone just mentioned to me in the break, they heard this women in ministry sermon that I gave. I'm very grateful for that. Uh, that it meant something to them. That uh, particular sermon was the, the, the fruit of a year and a half strategic plan of my relationship with the church that I preached at regularly. Uh, I met in small groups. I met with pastoral staff. I went to coffee clutches. I had one-on-one conversations with key leaders. Um, I made sure that we'd built all the way up to the moment when I gave a, a sermon on women in ministry. And then afterwards, there was a follow-up sermon later on. There was material that was created for small groups to discuss. Uh, it wasn't just a sermon. Now, all some people might experience now is a sermon somewhere else, and hopefully that other context is finding a way to build up to it and build out of it. Uh, but you can't just drop a sermon and drop the mic <laughs> and walk away. That won't work. Not on a tough topic. It works if you're preaching to the choir about singing. Clear, concrete instructions. You know, John Drury is my brother-in-law, my colleague in, in, in teaching, one of the most ridiculously brilliant minds I've ever known. He doesn't like it, but I call him a beautiful mind sometimes. <laughs> um, like, he just, he reads stuff and he doesn't forget it. Well, you know, on page 72 of Carl Barr's Search Dogmatics in the third volume on footnote number 17. What? <laughs> Hate you. Uh, he's a wonderful person. Uh, we were going to the same church for a while in, in doctoral work and, and after one of the sermons, he said to me, Dave, I just want my pastor to tell me what to do. Brilliant mind. Knows the scripture at least as well as any of us in the room. Has read the tradition of the church more than any of us in the room. I mean, on vacations, he's doing this, you know, with his book, you know, walking around, sitting in the corner in the family room, and he's reading another theology text, you know. And he just wants his pastor to tell him what to do. Tell me what to do, and I will do it, he said. But today, I don't know what to do with that. That's a brilliant theologian. Asking pastors, give me clear, concrete instructions that I know what to do with. If he needs that, so does the teacher, the Edward Jones worker, who used to be in ministry, the car salesman, the factory worker, the unemployed person, the stay-at-home mom, the widow, the orphan, the refugee, the immigrant, 
they need it too. Give them clear, concrete instructions. You're not done with a tough, tough topic until you know what to tell people to do. Plato. The wise speak because they have something to say. Fools speak because they have to say something. Now, you're here, so you probably saw Pastor Steve's little video introduction, and you probably talk about, heard him talk about saying, well, maybe we don't just need to say stuff better. Maybe we need to have better things to say. I think that's a good word. If you're going to preach on a tough topic, yes, you have to say something. You're going to start out a fool. Be okay with that. But you need to gain wisdom along the way until it gets to the point that you have something to say. Often in homiletics, we say, carry the sermon and keep carrying it. But you're not ready to preach yet until the sermon's carrying you. Do the hard work, set aside the blocks of time to do the hard work, have the tough conversations, build the strategic plan, and keep building that thing until it starts building you. Keep carrying that thing until it starts carrying you. Keep looking for what to say until you have to say it. And then when you step under the pulpit, you're not focused on your fears. They're still there. You know you have to say this thing. And so you go say it. So when you're about 60% ready, schedule the sermon. When you're about 60% ready, schedule the sermon. Let people know you're going to preach on it. Give yourself enough lead time to make sure that you can get the last 40%. Why do I say that? Because you can study for the next five years and still not talk about that topic that's on your note card. You and I both know it. Get to 60%, schedule the sermon, let others know about it, start the strategic planning toward it, and then you're going to work on the 40%. I guarantee you. I think I have a few other things to say. Go through them real quick. Let your fear drive you to prepare is what I'm trying to say. Drive yourself to preparation. Uh, Prepare in prayer. That's the only way you're going to have peace about this thing. Don't worry about anything. But through prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. And the peace that transcends all understanding. You don't understand it yet. I know you don't understand it yet. The peace that transcends all understanding will guard your heart in Christ Jesus. I was preparing a sermon the other week, just a few weeks ago, and I was just absolutely blocked. And I kept telling my wife I was blocked. And then I realized one day, I haven't got on my face yet. I teach this. I talk about this. Just because you know it doesn't mean you do it. Get on your face. Get carpet marks in your forehead. Then peace comes, as long as you're also preparing. Time for a quick story. Do we have time for a quick story? Two minutes. I was uh, preaching at a camp I often preach at, holiness camp, died in the woods, holiness camp down in the deep south where they, they still do 11 days in the heat of July. Uh, and un, one tabernacle's on the air conditioned. The other one's air conditioned, but it's open, so all the air conditioning goes out. It's like they're throwing fistfuls of dollars out the window all the time while you're preaching. Uh, and I had lunch with one of the board members of that uh, place, and you know, I'd been noticing that most of, you know, everybody was white, uh, and the, the entire kitchen crew was black. So it was a nursery crew. And I confronted the president on it. I said, you know that the, the two... Uh, nursery workers that have hold, held every single one of your babies are retiring this year? Oh, they are? Do you know their names? He didn't. They had a celebration for them that week a little bit later. Uh, I was noticing some things, and I started to feel like I'm not sure I can keep preaching what I plan to preach. Uh, felt like a sermon was coming together from things I'd studied before. It wasn't like I just threw this thing together. I'd studied 1 Corinthians 13 before for other contexts, but God just really started pressing on me that I needed to talk about this. I needed to talk about this. So I got up and preached and after I had lunch with this guy. But at lunch with this guy, he's a member of the board, uh, Coco and Cookie are cooking dinner. I thought, are you kidding me? Did I just transport in time, like back 40 years? What's going on? 
two African-American women. I tried to talk to them. They looked embarrassed, like they shouldn't be talking to me, like I was going to cause them trouble, so I backed away. They were supposed to be invisible. Coco and Cookie were dismissed from the room, and it was time for dinner. After dinner was done, Coco and Cookie came back to clean the dishes, and we went out on the porch to sip sweet tea and a swing. He drove me down to his golf cart to preach that sermon I was planning to preach, and I got up and said, do you love people? That was the title of the message. 15 points on how to love people from 1 Corinthians 13. Do you love people? I kept asking. Did it in 15 minutes, you know, one minute apiece, and they had a long uh, time they allowed us. And then after 15 minutes, I said, okay, I've tricked you. That's not the sermon, and that's not the sermon title. The real sermon title is, Do You Love Black People? Now, if there was anybody in here who wasn't white, I might preach a little bit differently, but we're all white, so do you love black people? Went back through the 15 points of how to love people. I was pretty convinced this was the last time I was preaching at this camp. I was, and I'd made a conscious decision. I'm never coming here again. Probably won't preach tomorrow. Whatever. At the end, I had them bow their heads, close their eyes. Raise your hand if you realize that you're a bigot and God has some more work to do in your heart. I was convinced I was done. The board member in the front row who I just had lunch with raised his hand, tears streaming down his face. I thought he was gonna go back to the board and they were, I, I was done there. My kids baptized at this camp, preached there for years, you know. I said you can put your hands down, he refused. Major leader in the Methodist church. Won't say his name. Tears streaming the whole time. I kept saying, you put your hand down. I finally called his eyes. I said, you can, you can put your hand down. I see you. I finished praying. He kept his hand up to make sure everyone saw. Sometimes when we face our fears, they go sometimes. And I pray for you in that tough topic that you're facing, that maybe that'll be the case. Just maybe. Lord, help these preachers. Show them what to say and when to say it. Help them see the wolves for what they are and to be well prepared for wolves, to name them, but to not run from them, to run at them. In Jesus' name, I'll say it.